Well, good morning again and welcome. We are continuing this morning in our study of Paul's letter to the Romans, taking our third and uh, final look, I promise, at the uh, opening thesis statement here for the letter, Romans 1, 16 to 17. With these words, Paul brings the introductory section of this letter to a close and at the same time sets us up and he prepares us for the next major section of this letter which extends from verse 18 of chapter 1 all the way through to verse 20 of chapter 3. In our first two looks at this thesis statement, we focused in upon some of the key phrases that can be found in this very dense set of verses. We've looked, for example, at Paul's statement that he was not ashamed of the gospel and what that meant. We've looked at the reason Paul wasn't ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation and what all that meant. We then looked at who this powerful, nothing to be ashamed of gospel was and is intended for, and in that saw two sets of qualifiers. We saw firstly that it was for all who believe, and then that it was for the Jew first and also to the Greek, and we saw what that was about. And finally, we turned our attention to the very important phrase that talks about the righteousness of God having been revealed in the gospel and saw that while, uh, theoretically at least, there are several possible ways this might be taken, there seems to be a primary way in which Paul intended his readers to understand what he was saying, namely, uh, that the phrase, the righteousness of God, is referring in the main... Not to a quality of God, although he does have that quality. Not to an activity of God, although all of God's actions are righteous all the time. But rather, it is referring primarily to God's bestowing his righteousness upon unworthy sinners. And thereby giving them a new status before God. A right standing before God. Now first look at that last week. We highlighted one reason why understanding Paul's language in that way seems to be correct. And it was simply that the content and the emphases and even the structure of the rest of this letter seems to require you to understand Paul in that way. Or better yet, seems to assume that you are understanding Paul in that way. And then after looking at that, we finished by talking about why Paul seems to have done this. Um, why any of this matters, and why Paul took the time to carefully place Romans 1, 17, where he did in this letter. And that reason had to do with Paul's taking the very pastoral step of making sure that before he leads people into this extended discussion of sin and the wrath of God against sin and the unrighteousness of men and women in their sin, before Paul uh, goes there, he wants his readers to be clear about the fact that the power of the gospel to save is to be found centrally in the fact that it is, in it God's people are brought into a right standing with God, by God, and not by their own merits. They're going to need that. They're going to need to keep coming back to that as they work their way through and think about the implications of what he's about to say. For a good while. This morning I want to pick up where we left off there and spend the remainder of our time wrapping up our study of this very important thesis statement. And I want to do it firstly by thinking about uh, two more reasons why 
I think we're right to understand Paul's reference to the righteousness of God in the way that I've outlined. And then following that, I want us to look briefly at this word revealed and what it means and why that matters. And finally, I want to look at this phrase, from faith, for faith, and what that's all about and and the quotation that follows it. And finally, finally, I want us to think about, at the end, one further pastoral implication for why what Paul says here in verse 17 is so very important. Uh, That's where we're going for go any further into that. Let's pray together. Great Father in heaven, as we look again at this portion of your word, help us to hear good things, which will mean a lot has to happen. It means uh, you have to be the teacher here. It means we have to be listening. Uh, We have to be able to hear. It means we have to stay focused and not be led astray in our minds down a thousand uh, potential paths, but stay on this one. Father, every one of us walks in this room with a load of things, and some of us with a massive load of things that weigh on our minds and hearts, and there's a huge potential to miss what you're saying to us. And we're asking that you don't let us do that, Father. Don't let us miss it. Whatever else we tell ourselves we need, there is one thing we always need, and that is to hear from you. So speak to us now. Speak to our hearts. Melt our wills. Bring clarity where there is fog and confusion. Conviction where there is hesitancy. And encouragement where there is despair. Do it all, Father, and then some. And it's in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Let me just read the passage to you briefly. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek, for or because in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. As we've already seen uh, last week, we looked at one reason for understanding Paul's reference to the righteousness of God as referring primarily, but not necessarily exclusively, to the righteous standing that God confers upon sinners. And to that first reason, I want to add a couple more this morning. For starters, and in some ways this is kind of a, uh, a concrete for instance of the first reason, but still capable, I think, of being isolated as a distinctive point in its own right. But uh, turn with me, if you will, to Romans 3, starting at chapter, uh, uh, sorry, chapter 3, starting at verse 21. And if you don't have a Bible, just listen along. I'll read that for us. But now the righteousness of God, there's that phrase, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Sounds a lot like that opening section. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins, it was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be 
uh, just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We just sang about that. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Simply put, one of the reasons we understand the phrase righteousness of God in chapter 1, verse 17, to be talking about God's righteousness imparted to the sinner is because that is precisely how that phrase is used and what this same phrase is talking about in the verses just read to you. Chapter 3. And you see it specifically where Paul talks about God's righteousness that results in people being justified apart from works of the law. To be sure, there is also present in this Romans 3 section, it seems to me, There is some reference here to the holiness or righteousness of God as a trait or characteristic or as something about him that is to be demonstrated or vindicated. Uh, I think you can also argue that these verses point to God's acting rightly, to his um, righteousifying actions, if I could make up that word for a moment. But both of those things are there to be found in Romans 3. However, I would still contend that the primary emphasis is upon the righteousness of God as something that is imparted to the unrighteous sinner, apart from works of the law. And it makes sense to me then to say that if that is the primary emphasis later in the letter, then we ought to expect some congruency between what is said there and what is said about that same topic earlier on in the letter. Another and third reason for understanding Paul's meaning in this way comes from looking even further ahead in Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 10, verses 3 to 4. If you have a Bible, you might want to turn there. But I'll read that to you as well. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And Paul's talking about his fellow Jews here, right? My desire is that they may be saved, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So here, as a guy named Riddlebarger points out, Paul is writing, again, about his fellow Jews, and he's clearly speaking of the righteousness which justifies as coming from God. Right? So Paul, he's not merely echoing some first century Jewish understanding of the righteousness of God. He is clearly correcting the Jewish misunderstanding of God's righteousness in light of the coming of Christ. And so as with the previous quotation, the internal evidence of the letter of Romans itself seems to me to be quite strong. And and it's pointing us to say that that we need to understand this phrase, the righteousness of God is referring primarily to the righteousness that God imparts to the sinner. Now you might be wondering, why is he going on about this? Why is he laboring this point so much? Uh, Here's the short and insufficient answer to that. There are theologians and theological movements that are redefining and challenging some traditional, fundamental, and historic evangelical convictions on some of these things. At least I feel they are. My hope is that over time, as we continue to look at what Romans is saying in its various parts, but my hope is that this long, uh, uninterrupted gaze at these things will equip you and me to recognize when you come across some of these other theologies. 
that may or may not be dressed up in fancy clothes. When my twin sister got her first job at a bank in Slidell, they gave her a new $1 bill, and they gave her a new $5 bill, and a $10 bill, and a 20 and a 50 And they told her to take, it, take those around with her, and whenever she had a free moment, to pull them out and just stare at them, study them. Look at all the details, read them a thousand times, look at the front and the back. And um, why? Well, because they wanted her to develop this kind of intuitive sense or instinct for recognizing phony or counterfeit pieces of currency. And so rather than giving her countless examples of phony or counterfeit currency to look at, uh, they loaded her up actually with the real thing and said, if you know what the real thing looks like, then when uh, something else comes along, maybe the warning light's going to go off for you. You're going to realize there's something missing here, something wrong here. That's what I'm hoping will happen over time and through this study of Romans. Rather than trying to look at and understand a lot of different views out, that are out there, we're going to put the bulk of our time into looking at uh, what I hope is true and right, is an accurate exposition, and hopefully will serve you and us well in the future. Well, having looked now both last week and this week at three reasons why we ought to understand the righteousness of God in the way we've been discussing it, I want to say something about what it means that in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed. John Murray puts it like this. He says, when Paul spoke of the righteousness of God as being revealed, he meant more than that it was being disclosed to human apprehension or understanding. He means that it was to be revealed in action and operation. The righteousness of God was to be made manifest with saving effect. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is actively and dynamically being brought to bear on man's sinful situation. It's not merely that it's being made known as if this is just about new information. In other words, Murray is saying that God, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, was not just giving us data about how the righteousness of God was going to be imparted to sinners. He was making it happen. He was revealing it by doing it, not merely by talking about it. Why is that important? It's important because... As I've already said, there is something here, I think, about the right acting of God and the right and just workings of God on behalf of and for the sake of sinners. Absolutely. It's important to acknowledge that. But the other reason it's important to understand what this means here is because the very next verse, chapter 1, verse 18, we're going to come across a similar phrase that talks about the wrath of God being revealed. And just as with the righteousness of God, when it talks about God's wrath being revealed, it's not just informing us that God is upset about human sin and wickedness. It's saying that God's wrath is being made manifest, that it's being poured out on the world, all around us, even within us, right now. The entire world, right now, is under and is experiencing the wrath of God right now. It's not the fullness of it, but it is a foretaste, and it is real, 
and it's not pretty. And we'll have more to say about that soon. But I want you to see that connection between the two revealed. The last phrase I want us to look at before wrapping it up is this little one that comes after the phrase, the righteousness of God is revealed. Let me read it for you again in context. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first, also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith, for faith, as is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now the part I want us to think about again is that last bit, from faith, for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I'm going to start with that phrase, from faith, for faith. Uh, a lot of ink has been spilled over this, and uh, we're not going to rehearse all of that. I'm sure you're glad about that. But let me tell you what I believe Paul's telling us. In the first part, he's talking about that from faith. He's talking about the instrumentality of faith as the means by which we come to know and experience and possess the righteousness that God imparts to his people. As we believe, as we trust in what he's done, in and through the gospel of Christ, we are saved, we are made right with God, and this is something that comes to us by or from faith or even through faith, as some translations have that first part of that phrase. But as we saw when we looked at verse 16 a couple weeks ago, the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe, right? Not just for all who once believed, but for all who have believed and are continuing to believe. So that we can say that we have been saved, that we are being saved, and that we will be saved all at the same time. All of those things are true. There are present and there are future benefits and outworkings of this salvation that's been secured by Christ. In a similar way, the righteousness of God that is revealed, that is made effective and manifest in the gospel, which is received by us through this instrumentality of faith, by faith and through faith, that righteousness of God with which we've been credited is also for faith. It's for our ongoing, daily living and trusting in the Lord Jesus and for our continuing to believe the gospel. It's not just a truth that we sort of look back on nostalgically, but it's one that we continue to remember and reckon and appropriate in our day-to-day life. It comes to us from or by faith, and it is also for our ongoing faith. The obvious question is, how so? One writer responds to that this way. Romans 8.13, Paul says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. But the problem is, we all know that in our war with sin, we do not win often enough to have peace in our consciences. So if our life hangs on perfect winning in the war with sin, we're going to despair, we're not going to persevere to the end, we'll simply give up because there's no use in trying. What then will keep us going? What will keep us fighting so that we will live. Romans 1, 16-17 answers, The gospel is the power of God to save believers because in the gospel we can see revealed every day that our standing with God is not based on our own righteousness but on God's, freely given to us by faith. And when we see that over and over in the gospel, day after day, long as we live, 
our faith is renewed and it's sustained, and we press on in the fight. Our confidence that God will help us in life and save us from the wrath to come is based on our ever-renewed assurance that our acceptance with Him is based on the gift of His righteousness, not ours. So the righteousness of God is ours from or by or through faith, and it's also something that's for faith, for ongoing, sustained, believing, and trusting, and continuing to strive after God and the holiness without which we will not see the Lord. And this, I take it, is the point of Paul's quotation of this verse from Habakkuk at the very end. Let me read verses one more time, just that, that last bit. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. I take it that the reason Paul quotes Habakkuk here is because in his mind this quotation supports what he's been saying and specifically what he's just said about the righteousness of God being from faith for faith. So how does this quotation support that? Well, In its original context, in the book of Habakkuk, it's not very big, you ought to read it, uh, that verse comes in, it's in chapter 2, verse 4 of Habakkuk. But that verse comes in as God's response to a question, or even a complaint, actually, that the prophet Habakkuk had made to God. Habakkuk was looking at the people of God, people of Judah, and he knew that God's people had not been faithful. He knew that they deserved to be on the receiving end of God's discipline, and he was troubled by that fact and by what he saw as God's inactivity on that issue. So he's actually complaining to God about this. In response, God tells Habakkuk that, in fact, he is going to respond to the disobedience of his people, and he's going to use a heathen nation, the Babylonians, to do it. Well, Habakkuk then responds to that revelation with a second complaint, and his second complaint is basically, why would God use a more wicked nation to punish or discipline a less wicked one? It's in response to that second question or complaint that God says, among other things, the righteous shall live by faith. In other words, God doesn't answer the prophet's question directly. Sounds a lot like his finishing conversation with Job. He doesn't tell Habakkuk why he's doing the things the way he's doing them. He goes past that, actually, to a more important point, as if to say, here's the crucial thing for you to remember here. The righteous shall live by faith. In other words, God wants Habakkuk to remember the promises and live by faith in God who makes and keeps his word to his people. He wants him to trust God, even though he may discipline his people with this pagan nation, even though they may endure great hardship afterwards. And it seems to me that this same sort of trust and confidence in the promises of God, specifically in the promise of God's righteousness imparted to the sinner, that is what Paul is underscoring for his Roman readers by referencing this verse. That's not the view of most commentators, but it's the one that makes the most sense to me. So just to summarize, there are a number of internal reasons uh, having to do with the structure in the content of this whole letter that push us, I believe, to understand Paul's phrase, the righteousness of God, to be referring to a right standing with God that is conferred 
upon the sinner by grace and through faith. And that then plays a role in the ongoing life of faith for the believer. The last week we looked at one practical reason why this doctrine is so important specifically for why Paul introduces it here in the opening statement. And mainly because it makes the blow, the coming blow of 118 to 320, it makes it bearable. So otherwise it would crush you. But there's one more reason I want to add to that previous one. Another reason why, pastorally speaking, this doctrine of the righteousness of God is so very, very important. And again, I'm uh, indebted to Piper for helping me and us to see this. But here's the thing. All of us are going to die. We are all going to die. Unless Jesus comes back, all of us are going to die. Some of us won't get a chance to see it coming. It's just going to happen. We won't get much or any opportunity to contemplate it or to watch death's steady approach. That's just how it's going to be for some of us in this fallen and broken world. But a lot of us are going to see it coming. We're going to see it coming for other people that we know. We're going to get the news one day is cancer. And we're going to look at our options and we're going to fight it. Sometimes that battle will be won for a while, but you still have to come back sooner or later to the battle that you're not going to win. And there's going to be that point the doctor starts telling you what the prognosis is. And you watch that window of time narrow and shorten for you. And I don't know about you, so I'll just speak for myself here. But if that is the way that God takes me, and I get to that place and they're telling me I've got two months, one month, maybe less, to live. And I get to that place and I'm looking back across the landscape of my life and I think about all the things I have done, not done, said and not said, things I meant to do but never did, things I ought not to have done but did them anyway. I remember that and I think about the fact that very, very soon I'm going to walk through this dark door and I'm going to step into the presence of a glorious, impossibly holy and just and pure and righteous God. And the thing I'm going to want to know when that moment comes, more than anything else, is not just that God loves me, although that is fantastic, but I want to know more than that. I do not want to step or perhaps crawl before a holy God on just that. I don't want to be wondering if God was just being nice to me or if He was just sort of letting me off the hook, so to speak, by looking the other way or just kind of ignoring my sin but not really dealing with it. I don't want to know that God's dealings with me were arbitrary or capricious in any way. What I want to know is that my salvation was not the result of a divine momentary whim of benevolence, but that my salvation is secure. I want to know not only that God has done it, but that He did it right. That's, that it's flowing out of the core of who He is. Loving, yes, but also holy 
and just. That there's no part of God's being or character that was left out in the securing of that salvation. There's no part of God that had to look the other way in order to pull it off. I want to know that God was all in. It was not just the love of God, but it was the very righteousness of God that secured my salvation. That's what I'm going to want to know. And that, it's not a whim. It's not a divine fancy. It is secured. It's eternal. It's unshakable. And it comes from the very depths and core of who God is. And that is why this doctrine matters. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful. Not only that you saved us, that you loved us, but for the way you saved us. The way you did it makes all the difference in the world. We're not sneaking in. We're not getting in for any other reason than the fact that you made this right. And we thank you for the security of that. And I pray, Father, that out of the security of that, we would live as people who know that, who are grateful for that. We want to be like the God who loves and saves like that. Make us those kind of people. We thank you for saving us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Those who are taking up the morning offering will come forward. We'll receive that now.